0: So submitted servants of Jesus is not a passive submission, but it actually turns on itself and says, we're going to live such good lives in these places, in these, these areas of, of authority, so that others would be drawn in, and it would actually silence those around us to say, hey, we have, there's no indictment against us. Because we serve this living God, because we serve a God of grace and mercy, and so we're going to be people of, God, uh, uh, people of mercy and grace. And, and so he says, instead of living as people that are, that are, that are shackled by, by sin and, and, and the, the approval of others, that we can actually live as servants of God. We're freed to do that. Now, we see this all over Scripture. Let me give you a couple examples. Romans uh, 13, Paul talking here, another great kind of how do we live as, again, Romans was written at a different time than 1 Peter. Um, Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath to the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, there's a lot there we won't get into this morning. But, But essentially what he's saying is that God actually institutes and ordains people to be in authority, even people that don't believe. Why? Because it's God's world. The whole thing is is God. There's not a Christian subculture over here and then uh, the non-Christian culture over here. It's God is Lord of all. God is Lord of all people, all cultures, all institutions, all people. He's made everyone in the image, in his own image and likeness. He's the Lord of everything. So even those that don't believe what we believe and even those that that even contradict what we believe, God has still instituted them and placed them in places of authority. We'll get into how do we deal with that when it pushes against our Christian convictions. Do you hear what Paul's saying here? That's God's will. Now again, it's not just a passive thing. It's not just, hey, just shut up and pay your taxes. (laughs) Now, you have to remember, in the first century, that's kind of how it was. Because they didn't live in a democracy. We'll get into that in just a moment. They, They lived in an authoritarian state where they didn't have a say on anything. It was just do this. It was a dictatorship. The Roman Empire ruled. You don't question anything. You don't say anything because it'll go really dark really fast. But, but, but we're to su- subject ourselves because God is in control of everything and he's using everything, even what appears to be, be evil. Not that he's evil, but what appears to be evil, he's even in control over those things, ensuring that his plans and his purposes will be fulfilled. How do I know? Because the Bible says so. In the Old Testament, God is using all kinds of non-believers in, in Yahweh and to, to fulfill his purposes all the time. In the New Testament, too. God's, he's not going like, well, I can only use Christians. Of course not. He's got, i has got a plan. I'm going to make sure that, that one day my glory is known in, in the heavens and the earth and everywhere. I'm going to use Christians and non-Christians because I have a plan for my glory. I'm not, I'm not hamstrung by anyone. So he's placed authorities. He's, he's put people in place. So, we're to do good in those places. First Timothy 2. I might be familiar with this text. We're called to, to even pray for those in places of, of authority. How often do we pray for um, our, our, our mayors, our governors, our senators, our teachers, our coaches, who, the, the, our, our families, the people that God has placed in, in, in our lives as authorities? 1 uh, Timothy 2. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for what's the word? All people. And in the Greek, it means all people. For kings and all who are in high positions that we may be, lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God has an agenda for his people. That you would live such good lives in culture. Why? So that they would know Jesus Christ. They would be drawn in. Do you hear what he said? Pray for all people, whether they're Christians or not. Pray for, for people in high positions and low positions. Why? And then live such godly lives. Why? So that others would be drawn in. They would see that you're, you're in a very imperfect way, God's character living through you, that they'd begin to go, what is this hope that you have? We'll, we'll talk about that in First Peter in a few weeks. God has a plan. There's a reason why we're called to be submitted servants of Jesus. So that others would know the same Jesus that we follow. There should be no passivity for Christians. There should be no hiding off and isolating ourselves for Christians. That's not a biblical idea. Never has been. Always been God's call and plan to put us in the middle of a culture that doesn't believe what we believe so that our light would shine in such a way that others would be drawn in to know the same God that we worship. Now we talked about this a couple weeks ago, right, with the Ten Commandments. Why does God give us the Ten Commandments? Because He just doesn't want us to have any fun. Obviously. I mean, that's God's plan A of the universe, is I want to be bored and not have any fun at all. No, He gives us the Ten Commandments so that we could have more joy. And so that we would be placed in a culture that as we follow these Commandments, and as we obey these things, our light will be seen. That others will be drawn in because the commandments reflect the character of God. And so, as we are being more more um, transformed and conformed, as Paul says, into the image of the Son, then guess what? Others will be drawn in as well. That's always been God's plan. Hey, let me give you a couple more texts. Titus three, just so you know, I'm not crazy. Um, Titus 3, we already think that, but Titus 3, 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarrelling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness, I love this verse, uh, loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing, every generation, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. What is our motivation for living like this? used to be haters of God, enemies of God. You didn't have the mercy of God in your life, the grace of God in your life, and yet He came to you and He redeemed you. He brought you into the family. He forgave you all of our sins. Now, as you are caught up in that same mercy, well, guess what? We're going to be merciful to others, because we didn't deserve this mercy. We didn't deserve this grace. So, every human that you come in contact with, they don't deserve mercy or grace either. You see how that works? If you think they, they <laughs> we don't understand grace and mercy if we can't extend it to other people. It's a gift. It's not because you're awesome, <laughs> right? Like how many times I have to say that as, a, as a pastor, right? It's not because you're awesome that you're a Christian, you're, you're the opposite of awesome. And actually, that's a great place to live. I know some of you are just like, I don't like this guy already. I mean, to say I'm not awesome. Have you seen my Instagram post? I am awesome. I was on a mountain the other day taking (laughs) selfies, right? That's a beautiful place to be, is is that we know we're not awesome, that God is gracious and merciful. So as you marinate in that, as you reflect on that, as you meditate on that, guess what? You can be gracious and mercy to people that don't deserve God's grace or mercy, because nobody does. Nobody does. That's how the whole thing works, right? And then one more, let me give you one from Jesus himself, Luke 6, uh, 27, about loving your enemies, Luke 6, uh, 27, but I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. (laughs) That's a challenge. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do do to you, do so to them. The golden rule, right? If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. Why? For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Did you hear that? That the father, our father in heaven, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Who are the ungrateful and evil? Everybody. (laughs) So we're to be kind to everyone because nobody's worthy of God's mercy. Nobody. We're to live such good lives in culture and society because our Heavenly Father is that kind of God who is merciful to the ungrateful and the ungodly and evil. Romans 1. Right? Those that don't even thank Him, they, they, don't, they don't acknowledge Him, they don't acknowledge His power, they don't acknowledge Him as Creator. And so our posture in society is always to live like our Heavenly Father lives, who's patient and merciful and kind. We're to reflect our Creator. Now, is this easy? Yeah. Or the opposite. It's the hardest thing in the world, isn't it? Like Jesus just said, um, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. (laughs) Because I don't know about you, but my natural posture before people that hate me is not like, how can I help you today? How can I make your life go better today? Right? It's more like, how can I tweet at you and write hateful things on Facebook towards you and then pray that fire rains down from heaven on you? Is that just me or am I being too honest? It's not, how can I make your life better, how can I serve you, right? But if we follow the logic, it makes every bit of sense. Because at one time, I was an enemy of God. And yet God invited me into his family. And one time I hated God, one time I hated my neighbors, and yet he invited me in, just like he invited you in. And what good is it if we just do good to those that already do good to us, right? It's really easy, isn't it? So easy right? Those that love us, those things were great. It's easy. Here you go. Here's my stuff. Here, come on over here and let me feed you, right? But what about those that don't we want to be in the same room with you? And that's the argument, that's the logic in which First Peter is, is making his, his case, is that we are always, God's people have always lived in places and societies and cultures that didn't receive them as, as didn't see, receive this good news as really good news didn't receive God's people, were pushed aside, didn't want to listen to them. Even in our day and age, the same thing is, is going on. I mentioned Jeremiah 29 a couple weeks ago that, that, that even God, people, when they're in exile and they lived uh, uh, in Babylonian exile, that they were to put down roots and, and get married and, and build gardens and build houses and pray for the city because as the city thrived, they would thrive as well. As the city experienced shalom, they would experience shalom as well. And God's people have always been called to be right in the thick of things, as submitted servants of Jesus. And then, as I've mentioned this, but as we do that, we'll put to silence those that have something against us. That, hey, you may not believe what I believe, you may not you know, like me or whatever, but you can't argue that I love you and, I, and I'm here for you and I'm here to serve and make this place a little bit better because of what Christ has done for me. And I hope that, God, that we could say that about all of us in your workplace, in, in your neighborhood, wherever you, you find yourself, is that, that there's no indictment against you. That we're definitely here for the city and for others because Christ has been for us. That he said, consider others better than yourself. Like, how often do we get up every morning and just like, okay, Lord. Today, you said, consider others better than yourself, right? It's the opposite, right? I mean, ironically, where do we usually start our days in front of a mirror? (laughs) Right? Saying, oh, the hair, got to get it, you know, pimples, still get. I'm 40, I still get pimples. Anybody else? Sorry, that has nothing to do with the sermon, but um, is that too honest? Um, Right, just trying to get everything right, trying to get everything straight. Not... How can I serve other people today? How can I consider other people's needs better than my own? And I will say this, it's the best way to live. Blessed be those, Jesus said, blessed is better to give than to receive, right? We know that's so true deep in our bones. It's the hardest thing in the world to live like that, but we know it's true, right? I've used this illustration a million times, but it's that that we try to serve other people or help other people because we think it's selfless, right? We're just, this is all for them, right? But then we have this kind of euphoric experience of like, this is awesome, and we feel kind of guilty about it, right? Like I shouldn't feel good about this. Like when I'm helping other people meeting a need, it's like I shouldn't feel good. That this, this is wrong, God. Like I should feel like this is suffering and sorrow. I do this all for you, and I do it with a with a frown. There shouldn't be joy in this at all. And then what happens? Joy starts bubbling up. Because that's how God has wired us to live in the first century because again we're, we're trying to bridge cultures here this this looks you know could look very different for them versus us but I think there's some some things we can 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 kind of draw from that so uh, here's a quote from Bruce Winter uh, he's a first century uh, theologian historian um, and he talks about what would this look like, this, this kind of civic good, living publicly, doing good in a, in a culture. And here, here's what he said. Here's what the first century Christians would look like. Benefactions included supplying grains in times of necessity by diverting the grain-carrying ship to the city, forcing down the price by selling it in the market below the asking rate, erecting public buildings or adorning old buildings with marble revestments such as in Corinth, refurbishing the theater, Widening roads, helping in the construction of public utilities, going on emphasis—excuse um, me, not emphasis—going on embassies to gain privileges for the city, helping in the city in times of civil upheaval. One must bear in mind that this whole region was often subject to earthquakes and the devastation they caused, both then and now. Christians would frequently have opportunity to help towns and cities overcome adversity in the region. I don't know about you, but that just really spurs my imagination for what this looks like. That there's no limit to this, right? It's what are the needs in our city? What are the things that are broken? And I just love being the pastor of this church and the ways in which you guys have, have risen to the occasions that we've, we've, we've looked at some really difficult uh, issues going on in our city, and, 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 and you know, some of you have fostered kids and adopted kids. We've looked at you know, the, the, the sex trafficking that's gone on in our city, and, and people have been championing that, and the, the hurting, and the poor, and, and you, you name it, right? I think it looks like all those things. It looks like the engineer saying, I'm going to build safe bridges and roads, and maybe this part of the city's broken. We needed to do something about that looking at our educational systems looking at our our government whatever it may be is is letting our our sanctified magic, imagination go crazy in all of these spaces whether it's in medicine or education or in the arts saying hey there's a there's a need here that we need to be for this city we need to do good in this city what does that look like how 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 do we how does that work now I love what the first Christians did, but there is one other caveat I want to make mention here I think is, is helpful, and I think this actually helps our, our work, as, as, if you want to call it that, is that I mentioned this already, but the first Christians didn't live in a democracy, just so you know. Um, hopefully you know that. If you don't, well, you just learned something. It was not a democracy. Very far from a democracy. It was very much an authoritarian state, So basically the Roman Empire says this is how the law of the land, don't question it, you have no voice, Uh, here's how it works. I'm going to read a quote from uh, a guy, Cranfield, uh, another theologian. He says, at this point we must notice a significant difference between the situations envisioned by the New Testament writers and our own. They were thinking in terms of an authoritarian state, which was the only form of state they had to deal with, and therefore regard the citizens solely as a subject whose duty to the state was mainly passive, a matter of obedience and paying taxes. We live under a different form of state, a democracy, which needs uh, from its citizens not merely respect for authority and submission to taxation, but also an active and responsible cooperation. Did you hear that? The citizen is not merely a subject. He actually shares in the responsibilities of government. We have no reason to think that a democracy is any less acceptable to God as a form of human state than an authoritarian state. On the contrary, there are reasons for thinking that democracy agrees better with the Christian understanding of man. By definition, a democracy is for the people. So, if it's for the people, that means we still have a voice in a democracy. right? It's not an authoritarian state. We vote in our elected officials. Did you know that? I know that's not shocking to anyone, right? Like you have a voice. Like you're you're not you're not muzzled, right? Even as Christians, we should have a voice in culture, as one of the voices. Because because we are we may have different viewpoints or whatever, but the reality is we live in a democracy. We have that kind of voice. The early Christians didn't have that kind of voice. And and, and this is not a listen to me, this is not a political sermon. Because here's the reality. Do you know what politics is? <laughs> It's just the ordering of a group of people or the ordering of a, of a community or a city and the ways in which things should go. The rules, the laws, the customs, whatever it is. That's all politics is. That's all it ever has been, right? Because you always say, well, don't, don't politicize things. Well, we should care about the way things are ordered, right? We should care about when things aren't going the way we, we think they should. When, when people don't have a voice, when people are harmed, when people are, are abused, that's all politics means. We don't have to get into, well, who, who we're going to vote for. Is it Republican? Is it Democrat? Is it you know, some weird green party? Whatever it is, it's, it's not that at all. But it's saying, we're going to do such good in our city, and it's going to include politics and everything else, how things are ordered, how things run. Right? And Christians always understood that. That's why they were the health care professionals of their day before there was health care. When people were dying in the streets, the Christians were, were, were helping them and nursing them back to health. When, as we read in this, this quote, when the, 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 the streets need to be widened, they were part of that. When, when, when they needed to, to, something was going on in the city or the theater was being burned down, they said, you know what, theater and, and, and art is a good thing. Let's rebuild that building so people can enjoy that, right? The Christians are at the forefront of that. So politics is really about how we order things. And as Christians, we should have a certain ordering that we care about. One that inhabits more and more of the kingdom of God. And it's not easy, is it? So how do we how do we do this? Like, where, where does the, the the power to do this? How, where does our power lie as exiles in society? you know we're not all, no one in here is a, a, a politician, no one's in here has you know super clout in our cities. We all have, we all play a, a part. but what is a, a group of, of people that follow Jesus in a place in a time? Where does that power? come from. Well, I've kind of skimmed over it on purpose, but go to verse 16. This is where it begins. Haven't said much about it, but notice what, how Peter says where our power comes from. 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. We as God's people have a new freedom, a freedom from sin, that Christ has accomplished for us. He's taken our sin. He's been resurrected from the dead. He's been crushed on the cross. Just, and, and we have been resurrected, as Paul would say. We've been crucified with him. We are no longer uh, our own, but we belong to him. Right? We have this new freedom that, that sin doesn't have the last say. Death doesn't have the last say. Suffering and sorrow doesn't have the last say. But also what the gospel does is it frees us from the opinions of others. We don't. We have a new identity. We don't have to live for uh, uh, what is cool and what is relevant or, or what people say we are. We have this new identity that's found in Christ that we be- belong to him. And that's what we talked about last week from verses 11 and 12 is, is why we need to abstain from these passions of the flesh that war against us, these desires that push us away from God and his kingdom. right? That should be part of our work. That's how you love the city well, is you, you deal with your own selfish desires. You deal with the, the ways in which you don't care about other people. You deal in which the ways that you're, you're making a mess of your relationships or your marriage or whatever it is. That's important work, because <laughs> it's always for the benefit of other people, isn't it? Like, if I'm a mess, like that doesn't serve my wife very well or my kids very well. And I'm a mess, by the way. But I want to become a little less of a mess, right? Like if I'm a mess, it doesn't serve the, the people I work with and the people in my neighborhoods, right? And we know his, history proves that out. <laughs> history, you know, the Roman Empire, I mean, the history proves that when we don't live for God and we have our own rules and we have our own freedoms because the, the, the cultural DNA for us is you don't, freedom is do whatever you want. Freedom is no law, no, no boundaries, right? So, so, so the true freedom is just let me be who I need to be. How is that working for us? Awfully, poorly, terribly, right? Because there comes a point in your life, and we, we've all got there, right? When we realize we're not that wise, we're not that smart, and when we think we can just live for ourselves, it goes upside down really quick. I mean, we have histories and cultures that don't, that, that, that you know, the Roman Empire imploded on itself. Why? Because it was all about the Roman Empire. It was all about themselves. It was all about power, right? It, it was all about, about, about that just out of bound sexuality. And that's what we see in the scriptures all the time is like why Paul's just continually engaging. He's just saying, guys, this is going to go really bad for you. Maybe not, maybe not tomorrow, but, but years from now, this is going to go really bad if we don't think about what, what you know, sexuality looks like and marriage looks like and parenting looks like and, and loving your neighbor looks like. like. This is going to go really, really bad if it's all about you. But now we have this freedom. Christ has set us free. What? How? Why? To be servants of God. Now, if you notice in verse 17, it says to fear God. We're not supposed to fear man, by the way. I think that's why half the Old Testament is fear God. Do not fear. <laughs> right? Just constantly reminds us. Do not, it's like, I think it's like, two, I read somewhere, it's like 2,000 times. We're just reminded again and again. Do not fear. Right? What causes so much devastation in us is, is fear. And typically fear of man. Fear of what other people think of us. Fear of how we're perceived. Right? That fear that we're not in the right group. We're not um, uh, meeting our our, our needs, having the successes. We don't have the right job. We don't have the right face. We don't have the right clothes. We don't have the right whatever it is, right? It's this this fear that somehow we're missing out on everything. FOMO, right? (laughs) I'm with it, kids. I'm hip. FOMO this thing. But we all fall into that trap, don't we? So, So Peter's posture is, it starts with the fear of God. So then you're not worried so much about what other people are saying, what other authorities are saying. It begins with a, a deep-seated fear love of God. Now, you can think of that as, well, I don't care what you think, because that's not what we're, we're talking about here either. It's just you should care on some level what other people say of you. If it's true and you're being a jerk, right? Like there's some truth in that, and there's some value in that, right? Right? But it starts with this fear of God. How do we live with this power? Well, it begins knowing we're freed from sin and death. It knows that we're freed from the opinions of others, but it's rooted in this, this fear of God. That boundaries are good. Laws are good because God is always after our joy and after always after our, our good. I read this little little book by, by Tim Keller called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, which I find really helpful. And in that um, book, he quotes this woman. I'm just going to read this to you. Um, who basically says, she writes for the New York Times, and basically says this idea of the self-esteem culture, like w- what's wrong with our culture, we just need to build up our self-esteem, right? We need to build up, we need to feel better about ourselves. The reason why people hurt each other and abuse each other is because we don't have a big enough self-esteem. we gotta, we got to raise that thing up, right? we got to tell everyone they're awesome, and it doesn't matter what they do or how they live, they're just awesome in general. That's what's going to get us there. And she's a, a psychologist, and she basically says that's nonsense. She says, people with high self-esteem pose a greater threat to those around them than people with low self-esteem. And feeling bad about yourself is not the source of our country's biggest, most expensive social problems. Now, why does she say that? She's not a believer. Here's why she says that, because we understand biblically and historically the problem with you and I is pride. It's a lack of humility. It's thinking that we are the center of the universe. And so for history, even cultures today, if you go to Africa, you go other places, usually outside the West, they understand the biggest problems in our culture is not because people don't have a big enough self-esteem. It's because they're full of themselves. It's pride, right? And so we have to deal with that pride. We have to we have to find a way to become humble, right? I mean, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, right? That the problem is not that we don't think about ourselves enough; is we need to think about ourselves less. And that's exactly how Paul understood it. That's how Jesus understood it. If you look at his life, you look how he lived. He wasn't always worried about, was he in the center of things? Was he in the center of power? Did he have his name on things, right? It was, it was actually the opposite. And I wanted to share one, one verse, because I think this is, this is helpful for um, understanding the way Paul understood himself. If you go to 1 Corinthians... Uh, uh, where we at here? Sorry. 1 Corinthians 4... 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of, ser- of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive the commendation from God. Did you hear what he just said? He says, It's not about self esteem. I don't even judge, I don't judge you, I don't judge even me. Because I know God is my judge. It's about self forgetfulness. It starts with the fear of God. He knows that he's justified by faith. That this, Paul's not saying I'm perfect and no one has any indictments again. I live perfectly every single day. And no one can say that. He says, no, the, the posture in which you and I need to learn how to live in our city and to do good for others begins with the fear of God. Why? So that we can f- begin to forget ourselves and say, I don't even judge myself because I'm not that important. God's my judge. He's enough for me. Because we're always worried about, right, the PR around us. Are we doing enough? Do I look enough? Am I doing enough for the city? But he says, no, the posture in which you want to do this kind of ministry, you want to do good things, 1 Peter, and Peter would say the same thing, is, is actually is, is dying to ourselves, taking up our cross and following Christ. So it's not always about me and my needs and my next thing, right? I think that's where the power comes from. And that's why Paul says, or Peter says, fear God. He doesn't say fear man. He says, don't, don't fear the people that I've played, that God's placed, these emperors, these rulers, these presidents, these governors, these senators, whatever. He says, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, Peter, Paul says. You are already justified. You're already in him. You've already been, judgment day has already come upon Christ, not upon you. So now you're free to live and not worry so much about what others think of you. All right? In the, the same book I, I mentioned, he was, uh, Tim Keller was quoting uh, C.S. Lewis and saying, how would you know if somebody was humble, what would they look like? And he says, well, they wouldn't walk around going, I'm so humble. <laughs> C.S. Lewis said, actually what would happen is when you have a conversation with them, they would care more about you than them. They would ask you a lot of questions about themselves. Hey, how are you? Tell me about your story. You want to see gospel humility on display. It's not like, hey, let me tell you about all the awesome things I did today or this week. Hey, tell me about that. How's that going? Right? What does humility look like? Considering others better than yourself. I know some of us just go, man, I, that's hard, right? We, we see it in city groups, right? We always have to prove ourselves, right? I'm, I'm not, you know who you are. I'm, I'm guilty of that, too. But when we meet someone, it shouldn't be about us. It should be about them. Right? How, how do we know when, when gospel humility? How do we know when the fear of God is our ultimate, primary uh, thing that drives our lives? When we know can say with honesty, I know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, whether I'm doing awesome things for God or not. That it's not about me, but it's about the good. Of others, the, the power to honor everyone made in the image of God, the, the power to love our Christian brothers and sisters, presidents and teachers, bosses and authorities in our lives comes from a healthy fear of God. That's where it begins and that's where it ends. So whether the church has great power, great authority at the center of things, or whether they're marginalized and pushed to the fringes, we're going to be okay because Ultimately, it's about God and His glory and His name. That we found our love and our joy and our hope and our identity and everything that we are first and foremost found in God, and which frees us now to be submitted servants of Jesus. Because we're free from the power and bondage of sin. We're free from the fear and approval of man. I've been, uh, I've been reading a book called Selfie, and uh, it's an interesting uh, commentary on some of the depression we're seeing in our culture, and, and some of the just suicide that we're seeing in our culture, which which is devastating. It's mainly in the West, and, and this is a guy. He's not a Christian by any means, but but he, he's kind of come to the conclusion that he says one of the reasons in which we're seeing so much depression and anxiety and all these things. And I know there there can be you know biological things and chemical imbalances. I understand that but one of the reasons is because of what he calls social perfection is that we're trying to be perfect to everyone around us and you realize deep in our bones we can never pull it off I'm not as good looking I'm not, I don't stick to my paleo diet like I want to um, whole 30 was about a whole 5 and then I just bailed because this is nonsense, what are we doing? I'm not the husband I want to be. I'm not the wife I want to be. I'm not the kid I want to be. I'm not succeeding in sports or in business world or I'm not getting the ministry jobs that I want. Whatever it is, it's because of this thing deep in our bones that says we have to be perfect. And yet the only perfect one is Jesus Christ and we are covered by his righteousness that we're all trying to be justified in some way, whether we're Christians or not. And the only one who justifies is Jesus Christ. So we look to him. That's how we love our city well. That's how we submit to the authorities that God has placed in our lives. And every week we have this great um, visual, if you will, um, of the one who came from heaven, (laughs) the one who stooped down, the one who submitted himself to the authority of the Father, um, the one who even submitted himself to the rulers of the day and ended up dying as an innocent man on a cross. Jesus Christ, the one who said to, to love our enemies, to bless our enemies. The one who on the cross said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. This God. Every week we have a, a reminder, a tangible reminder of, of the bread and the cup that we get to, to actually touch the bread and, and, and drink the cup and remember the body that was broken for us and the blood that was shed for us to know that our ultimate hope, our ultimate living hope isn't this city, but it's the city to come. That our ultimate hope isn't whether we're succeeding or failing or somewhere in between, but our ultimate hope and identity is found in the living hope in Jesus Christ who's resurrected from the dead. So if you're feeling this week, you, you've just kind of felt like, man, you know I, I don't understand all this you know, social perfection stuff or I don't understand, but man, I can, I can attest that I've just been just feeling this sense of like I'm not measuring up. I just pray you'd, you'd come to the table and, and if your faith is rooted firmly in Christ, he says you're enough today because of his work, not your own. If you feel like, man, I just haven't done enough in our city. I feel like I'm just always thinking about myself and the American dream and, and, and what I'm doing and, and, you know, don't give a rip about anybody else. If you need to repent of that, please do. But I also want you to know that God forgives and he's gracious. Because I don't know about you, but I, I feel that probably every other day. I, I don't ever, as a pastor, get up here and go like, hey, you guys need to figure this out. I've got this nailed, <laughs> right? You've hung around me long enough. That's not true. But I need this gospel word just as much as you do. I need this just as much as you do. But if you feel like, that, I'm just in that space, I'm not really thinking about the good of others and and my place in it. Just lay those down before Jesus. He forgives. And if you're not a believer in Christ, we just ask that you would would stay seated this morning. Um, We'd love for you to follow Jesus. Um, We believe he's the creator and redeemer and Lord of all things. And if you want to talk about that, I'd love to chat with you about that or one of our elders. We have some prayers in our city life you can read on and think on. Um, We've all been there. We've all had doubts. Maybe this morning's the the morning you start doubting your own doubts. Um, But the way we take communion is we have uh, two groups up in the front, two servers in the front. We break off a piece of the bread. We dip it in the cup. If you have any kind of allergies of any kind, we have some nut-free, gluten-free bread there in the middle. Feel free to take that uh, when you come uh, to the table. So with that, friends, let us pray. Father, we know that <clears throat> the world you made is a good world because you made it, and it belongs to you. We know that you made every human that will ever exist, past, present, future, in your image, and that means they are full of dignity and worth and respect. But we also know that we live in a broken world. We, we also know that our hearts are sinful and evil, and that we rebel against the good that you've laid before us. We, we rebel against our creator. We rebel against the, the ways in which you've called us to live. And it's only through the gift, it's only through the grace of Jesus that we could be part of your family, that we could have our sins forgiven. And so God, we know that as we go out into the world this week that the, the reality is there's a lot of ungrateful people and evil people that, that we believe maybe don't even deserve our love or our grace. Yet may we think long and hard about your grace, the Father's mercy, and who you are, O God. That we could even love our enemies, God. And we don't know what this looks like, but give us a a sanctified vision, a sanctified imagination that, that we would do a million different good works in our city for your glory, God, and that others would look and say, who are you people? Why do you care? And we'd have an opportunity to point them to the hope that we found in Jesus Christ. That's a lot to ask, God, but I know that you can do the impossible. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us.